From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. No doubt the country is polarized, but there's also false polarization. That is, an exaggeration of our differences. We become very vulnerable to misrepresentations of each other, and we become more susceptible to believing things that are mischaracterizations of what the other side thinks. A new survey about Americans' views of U.S. history reveals we may not be so far apart. Then, the possible return of supersonic commercial flight. This is something that humanity needs. We think that a more connected world has a lot of societal benefits, but that time is one of the reasons that people don't travel more. And later, what happens when Grandma's tried and true green chili recipe was never written down? When the world changes, come to CPR News for updates on what's happening. We'll keep you connected each and every day. Just tap on your phone to listen with the Colorado Public Radio app or come to CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. We are tired of being beaten by policemen. We're tired of seeing our people locked up in jail over and over again. And then you holler, be patient. How long can we be patient? We want our freedom, and we want it now. John Lewis, speaking at the 1963 March on Washington. The anniversary of that event just last month prompted a new survey asking Americans about their view of the civil rights movement. Given how much division there seems to be around how we teach history, the results of this poll may surprise you. Stephen Hawkins of Englewood will help us interpret them. He's research director for More in Common, which works to support democracies by reducing division. He joins us from time to time to lend more nuance to polarization. Welcome back, Stephen. Thanks for having me on, Ryan. Beyond the anniversary of the March on Washington, there are trends in this country, or at least the perception of trends, that made you want to conduct this poll, right? There are. So when we ask people if they feel that the country is divided today, it's really clear. We see that 80% of people say the country is divided. People are 30 times more likely to say the country feels very divided than to say that it feels very unified. But beyond general division, we hear people say in really high numbers that they think the country is divided specifically on the subject of U.S. history. 72% of people say that on the topic of U.S. history, we are divided. Run through first some of the questions you asked in that regard. And before you share people's answers, perhaps you could tell us what you thought you'd hear to those questions. Well, we've been studying Americans' attitudes towards American history, famous American historical figures, and different eras in history to understand this current moment we're in, where there seems to have resurged a discussion of history in the United States. And we specifically wanted to understand people's associations with the civil rights era of the 1950s and 60s as the August 28th, 59th anniversary of the March on Washington happened. And so some of the questions we asked were around people's associations with that era, with different figures, and then also about how that era should be taught. Different figures, including Dr. King, Rosa Parks, I think, was on the list. That's right. Malcolm X, 
we've also contextualized that information by asking about historical figures such as George Washington, Abraham Lincoln, and JFK, and others. What did you expect to hear? And what did you hear? Well, like many Americans, I personally um, have been seeing this division around American history and expected to see more of a partisan division when it came to how people think about the March on Washington and the era of the civil rights movement in general. And instead, what we find is almost a boring level of uniformity and consensus when it comes to recognizing the importance of that era, seeing it as an exemplary period of America's development towards freedom and equality, and a common recognition of the importance of teaching it to every student today, and of going beyond the most common examples of Rosa Parks and the, and the bus boycott in Montgomery to a richer, truer understanding of that whole era. That is to say, uh, no matter someone's party, no matter their race, no matter their age, you find a unifying force in the idea that the civil rights movement was exceptional, was the best of this country, the people associated with it uh, are to be taught and profoundly. That's right. Specifically, we ask people, for instance, to respond to this statement. The civil rights movement of the 1950s and 60s is an important example of Americans exercising their right to protest. We found that got overwhelming agreement across parties, generations. We asked people whether the civil rights movement advanced the values of freedom and equality in the country. And again, 77% of Americans agreed with that, and that spanned parties, generations, and races. And so what we see here is not a high degree of dissonance, division, and disagreement. Instead, what we see is a high level of consensus. And that is in stark contrast to at least the perception of the political discussion today. And there genuinely is a lot of division in the United States today. And we see many markers of that, including hostility towards people of the other political party being very high, very high levels of people saying that the other political party represents an existential threat to the United States, and even relatively high numbers, almost half of Americans say that there's at least somewhat of a possibility of a civil war in the next decade. And so there is, it's correct to assess the country as divided. Mm -hmm. But, and this is what I think is most interesting about this, in a context where there's a lot of division and hostility, including in the information environment where we learn about the other side, we become very vulnerable to misrepresentations of each other. And we become more susceptible to believing things that are mischaracterizations or exaggerations of what the other side thinks. This is an entire field within political science called false polarization, hmm. but we're seeing it in 2022 today, specifically on the issue of teaching American history and especially in this specific issue of the civil rights movement. And so I suppose you're interested, in spite of the division, in finding footholds of common ground that might get conversations started, that might reduce the false polarization. That's right. Having conversations that are about the specific issues. There is a conflict in this country about American identity, whether we should feel proud of it, or whether we need to reckon with it because of 
all of the ugliness in our history. That's an important conversation that must be had. But in the midst of that conflict, we are getting sidetracked on conflicts that are falsely represented, that are wildly over, overstated, and which are actually, I think, intentional efforts on the part of those who benefit from division to confuse and to benefit from um, the hostility felt towards the other side. I wonder if you asked folks at all to anticipate how another political party or those who subscribe to it would answer these questions about the civil rights movement. In other words, do you test the false polarization? Yes. So we have. And while all of the statistics and numbers you've talked about so far are part of reports that you can find on Warren Commons website, we're working on a report which will come out in October, which does exactly what you're talking about, Ryan, which is that it asks Republicans, what percent of Democrats do you think believe we should teach George Washington and Abraham Lincoln as admirable figures for their role in American history? And we ask Democrats, what percent of Republicans do you think believe that we need to teach Martin Luther King and Rosa Parks as examples of Americans who fought for equality? And we find really significant gaps. We find that the expectation is that just a minority, maybe a third of the outgroup party is willing to concede the revered figures of a conservative teaching of history or, or a liberal teaching of history. When in reality, we're seeing numbers as high as 85, 89, 90%, 93% of the other parties saying, yes, we have to teach MLK and Rosa Parks. Yes, we have to teach Abraham. Lincoln and George Washington. Mm. And so there's this chasm between the perception and the reality when it comes to these issues. And it's a problem that we can close with good information and through dialogue. And that's exactly what we're hoping to do with this project. It's as if we have more in common, Stephen. And uh, more, more in common is the name of your group. You are research director for it. Stephen will be joining us from time to time before the election to add some more nuance to Americans' views on a wide range of issues amidst what seems to be historic polarization. Now, it's one thing to say you admire the civil rights movement and yet stand by or actively participate in the dismantling of voting rights amidst false claims of voter fraud. Uh, it's an, it's a one thing to say I support the civil rights movement of the 1960s and yet complain about aspects of Black Lives Matter, for instance. Is it a bit Pollyanna to say that a common reverence for a historical era spells anything for today? That's a good question, Ryan, a very fair question. And I'll say two things in response to that. First is that it does not follow that the leadership or the behaviors of a movement in one era are the same as the leadership and the behaviors of a similar movement in a later era, 60 years later, any more than it follows that Donald Trump is a Republican in the same way that Ronald Reagan is a Republican in the 1980s. But I'll say this, so much of our conflict in this country is partisan. As I mentioned earlier in the interview, over 80% of Republicans and Democrats see the other party as an existential threat to the country. And with that premise, my concern and more in common's concern is that measures taken to stop the other political party from taking power 
will increasingly include hiding the truth, dishonesty, and methods of changing election outcomes that are less and less honorable. And it's in that context that I would interpret what we're seeing in changes of voting rights much more about fear of the other party than it is about fear of other people. It does seem as though the parties and perhaps those in power thrive to some extent on the divisiveness. Do you think that's true? I do. And I worry that part of what we see in the United States is a trend of negative partisanship, which means we dislike the other party more than we like our own. What animates us to vote is our fear or dislike of the other side, even more than our like for our own. And in an environment like today's, where there's such hostility towards the other party, it does create an opening for almost a race to the bottom in terms of poor behavior because accountability within parties is reduced and reduced because there's less of a threat that voters will move to the other side. Hmm. And yet, I, you know, I do want to say that at the risk of engaging in both sidesism, a key motivator right now for some voters is the idea of election fraud. And, you know, it's really only one party that's forwarding that idea. Um, so I guess I'm just saying that on the record to make it clear that this is not a question of both parties acting uh, in precisely the same way. Well, I make a practice of doing both sidesism in my analysis. I want to find the flaws and the strengths in each party to the degree that's accurate and fair. And in this case, I personally agree with you that the claims of election fraud are only coming from the right. The evidence to substantiate them has been very weak and that it's a, a narrative that's dangerous for our country. And worryingly, we're seeing, as we've done our research in the last several years, fewer and fewer shared trusted institutions. There's work done by Gallup, for instance, and by Edelman and the Trust Barometer, which shows that um, now the U.S. military has lost trust to a significant degree as well, which used to be one of the institutions with the highest reputation in the country. And that alongside a very fractured media landscape means that claims like election fraud can thrive and grow because there is not the disinfecting powers of shared, trusted, objective institutions that can help dispel them. And it's a worrying trend without a doubt. Right. And those institutions include journalism outlets um, and, and the notion that there are shared, trusted sources of information. I wonder if this is information you'd like people to keep in mind at the next school board meeting, where uh, perhaps fears of, you know, critical race theory emerge, or fears that history will be erased emerge, uh, that this could be a common discussion point, indeed, in as grassroots a way as a school board meeting. I think that the way I would approach a school board meeting is after the last two years of COVID hostilities and of the conversations around critical race theory, people go into those environments with a high level of fear and a high level of suspicion of the other side. And I would encourage people to 
take some of the findings from this report and come in and start with those as a foundation. We all agree we have American figures we can celebrate even as we look at their flaws. We all agree that there has been a trajectory of improvement and progress in this country. And we all agree that figures like Martin Luther King and Rosa Parks should be taught to every student. There's so much foundational agreement that Republicans and Democrats can depart from in the conversation that that can help bring down the temperature. And then there are necessary conversations to be had about whether children should be taught race at school as part of their own identity and what that would mean and how that connects to history. Those are important conversations that should be had at the school board. But starting with this shared alignment around some of these basics, I think could help to bring down the temperature and create a better environment for those harder conversations. Thanks for being with us. Thanks for having me on, Ryan. Stephen Hawkins of Englewood is research director for the global nonprofit More in Common. The organization is on the ground in four Western democracies to fight existential polarization, France, Germany, the United Kingdom, and the United States. And we'll be right back with a passenger jet that would break this sound barrier. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. The largest source of support for Colorado Public Radio comes from members across our state. I'm from Denver. Aurora. Glenwood Springs. Grand Junction. Boulder. Ranch. With your donation, you connect your city to nonprofit journalism, to inspiring stories, and you connect your community to a wide range of music that fills our daily life. Month after month, donors continue to step up. Thank you for your support. If a Colorado company has its way, commercial air travel will be a lot faster. New York to London, for instance? That pretty much cuts the flight time in half. So you're going from seven hours to to a little over three and a half hours. Los Angeles to Honolulu, three hours. Boom Supersonics' Ben Murphy says its planes will use different technology from the Concorde, which debuted in the 1970s and no longer flies. Murphy says people still want to get from point A to point B faster. This is something that humanity needs. We think that a more connected world has a lot of societal benefits, but that time is one of the reasons that people don't travel more. The new supersonic jet called Overture is in the design phase. It has triangular wings and a long, sleek look. As for the in-flight experience? We'll be flying at higher altitudes, and so we'll be above a lot of the turbulence that you experience on subsonic airplanes. Um, at these altitudes, you'll also be able to see the curvature of the Earth, which is something that I'm, I'm very excited to experience. Boom Supersonic plans to start test flights in 2026 and hopes to carry passengers by the end of the decade. Let's get some outside perspective, though, from Ned Russell. He's editor of Airline Weekly. Ned, welcome to the show. Thanks, Ryan. Happy to be here. Uh, I suppose it depends to some extent on price, but is there enough demand for this kind of high-speed flight? So that really depends on who you're talking to. You know, Boom says there's a, a significant market for, for, the, for the Overture jet, and uh, you know they've gotten some commitments from United, American, and Japan Airlines. But other reports say the market is small, 100 to 150 aircraft by the middle, by about 2035. So it's uh, it really depends on, on who you're talking to about that. Okay, so I mean, th- those are big names, United, what did you say, American and uh, JAL. Uh, what, what buy-in do they have at this point? 
At this point, it's minimum buy-in, it's press releases. I, I believe American made a, a small pre-delivery deposit of a couple million dollars. But, you know, for a multi-billion dollar company, that's, that's you know, small, small potatoes when it comes to financial commitments. Mm. So it's, uh, you know, the, a lot of this seems to be press at this point. They're raising awareness about this aircraft and generating some good press for themselves. But it's really questionable whether this airplane will ever will fly in the timeline that Boom suggests. You are skeptical, it sounds like. I am skeptical. You know, when you know, the Concorde debuted, it was first studied in the 1950s and didn't fly until 1976. That's you know more than 20 years. Hmm. The timeline proposed by Boom with uh, flight tests beginning in 2026 and delivering 2029 is very ambitious, even under current standards. For example, Boeing's new wide body, the 777X, was launched in 2013 and isn't supposed to fly till 2025. And that's using existing technology, and that's going to take about 12 years. So the timeline is very ambitious for this. Now, I never want to say we won't see a new supersonic passenger jet flying. That absolutely could happen. But without an engine, which is a big question mark for Boom, it's really ambitious to be saying it'd be flying by the end of the decade. You mentioned the engine. Rolls-Royce is a major aviation engine maker, including the Concorde many years ago. Boom just announced it was parting ways with that British company in a statement. A quote, it became clear that Rolls' proposed engine design and legacy business model is not the best option. What do you make of that? That's a blow for Boom, I'd say. You know, supersonic engines are not something that you, you just you know, walk into. It's uh, That takes a lot of know-how. The technology, of course, exists and is used widely on fighter jets. Huh. But you, you want a major partner like Rolls-Royce or Pratt & Whitney, uh, one of the large engine manufacturers on that. You want an engine that's reliable, uh, particularly for the certification that that engine will have to go through. And so that's that's a blow to Boom to lose Rolls-Royce. Well, I, th- I think we should talk about the boom, but uh, not the proper noun, the just plain noun. Um, the supersonic boom, isn't that a big part of the question here and the regulations around the sound and the vibration of that? Absolutely. So that's one of the big things that, that limited the Concorde when, with the sonic boom and the complaints that... Uh, people on the ground had you know the plane was limited to just flying over oceans so you ultimately only saw the concorde flying really between europe and the u.s particularly london uh, paris and new york Mm. and those rules are still in place Uh, so it would be difficult i'm not going to say impossible but difficult for boom to the the overture to be flying between say new york and la because of the sonic boom um you know, it's the sonic boom is, is something that just happens when a plane passes through the sound barrier, and it's not really you can't technologically find a way out of that. So that that will happen no matter what what the aircraft is. Oh, that was my next question: is could you engineer around it? But th- that's basic physics, so the answer is is no. Exactly. Yep. It's it's physics. It's just uh, <laughs> not possible, uh, at least not with the technology we currently have. So uh, given the potential costs of this, uh, it, it sounds like at its most promising, this would still be, uh, at least in the beginning, something of a niche passenger market. I do wonder if the pandemic, which has made remote work and, you know, video meetings uh, so common, has 
to some extent, robbed the airline industry of very lucrative business travel. Um, that's a broader question, certainly, than overture and boom. But uh, ha- has the pandemic reshaped that end of the market? Absolutely, Ryan. You know, business travel is the segment of the airline market that has come back the slowest from the pandemic. You know, most airlines are reporting that that large corporate travel is still down 10, 20 percent. Uh, small businesses are tend to be back. But the truth is, is, is uh, digital, um, you know, the, the digital communications that we have, uh, video conferencing, have become so ubiquitous that companies are eliminating a lot of particularly internal meetings and events that people might have flown for previously. And that's really cutting back on, on business travel. Now, the flip side of that is we're seeing a rise of sort of uh, mixed trips where people go for business somewhere for a few days and then stay on for the weekend. Um, you know, it's called pleasure by some people. Uh, whether <laughs> or not you like the term is another. Pleasure, <laughs> all right. We can debate okay. the merits of the, yeah. We can debate the merits of the term another time. But that's really changed the nature of business travel. And, you know, I was just listening to Sean Donahue, the head of Dallas-Fort Worth International Airport, the second busiest in the country. And he was saying he doesn't expect business travel really ever to recover above uh, about 85% of where it was in 2019. So, you know, it is a big change for the industry and something like the Overture, which will be more expensive to fly just to the, due to the economics of supersonic flight. It's going to be tough to attract those lucrative business travelers that use the Concorde regularly. And yet, if you can say, I'll reduce your flight by half or more for your business or your pleasure <laughs> trip. I, I, that's some something of a competitive advantage. I, what does history tell us about why the Concorde didn't survive, given how much faster it was and how, I mean, at, at 6'2", when I you know, shove into an airplane seat, I'd be very happy to have a shorter flight. I mean, absolutely. I think a lot of people would like a shorter flight, but the question is, how much more are you willing to pay for that? The the Concorde costs thousands of dollars more than a typical airline seat on a sort of subsonic aircraft across the Atlantic, and the problem was even at higher ticket prices, it's, uh, it, it costs significantly more to fly. Um, recent estimates by the International Council on Clean Transportation, MIT, put a new supersonic plane uh, looking at the overture, at seven to nine times more fuel consumption than your traditional jet aircraft. So it's going to take a lot more, it takes a lot more energy, a lot more fuel to to get those kinds of speeds. And and really that hit the economics of the Concorde really, really hard when, when it was flying. Okay, so that's something that Boom has to overcome. They say that the price will be competitive with subsonic uh, it sounds like you two are skeptical of that. I am. I mean, it's just the nature of airline economics. An airline needs to make enough money to cover the cost of fuel, the cost of crew, the cost of an aircraft on any given flight. And a supersonic aircraft is is not going to be a low-cost plane to fly. You know, Boom has promised that it could fly potentially entirely on sustainable aviation fuel, for example, uh, reducing its carbon emissions. But even those fuels are three to five times in cost, the cost of jet fuel. So it's really hard to see how any plane that's going to burn more fuel than the, the typical planes out there is going to be cheaper to fly. 
And on top of that, it flies sort of in the face of an industry that is actually working hard to reduce fuel use, reduce carbon emissions. So it's a, it's an, it's a sort of a conflict with that, that goal of the industry. You're listening to Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner, and we are speaking with editor from Airline Weekly, Ned Russell, about the future uh, if it will come, of supersonic commercial aviation. And uh, you mentioned there sustainable jet fuel. What is sustainable jet fuel? What is it made out of? And uh, to what extent are airlines using it already? So sustainable jet fuels comes from a number of, of sources, you know, oftentimes, so basically when you hear people talk about using you know, old cooking oil to, to make a fuel, and there's cars that do that, but, you know, they're making some jet fuel out of that. Things, uh, agricultural remnants like corn husks and stuff can also be used. But the idea, the definition of sustainable aviation fuel, as it's called, is that it's at least 50%, uh, generates at least 50% fewer carbon emissions than traditional jet fuel. And uh, you know, various companies are working on developing those. Uh, one of the ones that comes to mind is World Energy. They supply United Airlines, but there's a lot of other, other firms developing them. Mm. And the goal is, of course, to cut carbon emissions to uh, a net zero emissions for the global airline industry by 2050. And so a lot of airlines are banking on sustainable fuels to do that because these fuels can be used in the planes that are made today. And an airline typically flies a plane for 20, 25 years. So do the math. A plane built today is going to be flying around 2050. So you need something, a solution that can make that aircraft almost carbon neutral. And that's that's where sustainable fuels come in. But you talked about how much more expensive they are. So these are fuels that are being used now, pumped into wings? In very small quantities, it's a fraction of a percent of global fuel supply. Mm. And yes, they cost three to five times jet fuel. And that's why you have, for example, the Inflation Reduction Act that uh, President Biden signed into law in August has some incentives to bring down the cost of those fuels. And the goal is, is as more fuels produced, uh, the, the expectation is that the economics will improve, it'll cost less to produce them, and the, the cost parity, they'll come closer to cost parity with jet fuel. But at this point, they're still very expensive uh, compared to your typical Jet A. In just a few, Jet A fuel, in just a few seconds, would you fly in a supersonic commercial airliner net? Ryan, absolutely. I would love to fly in a supersonic commercial airliner, but um, it would probably be a one-time thing. A one-time thing. Uh, Thanks so much for being with us. I appreciate the perspective. Ryan, it's a pleasure. Ned Russell, editor of Airline Weekly. We talked about jet fuel, but also the Colorado-based company Boom Supersonic. And earlier we heard from that firm's head of sustainability, Ben Murphy. Colorado Matters continues in just a bit with some culinary detective work. I'm Ryan Warner. You're with CPR News and KRCC. One of Grand Junction's biggest parties is a monthly drag show that prides itself on being very inclusive. We have beautiful queens, we have butch queens, we have bearded queens, we have all kinds of queens, we have kings. (laughs) The super popular drag queens of the Western Slope. Their stories and pictures at CPR.org.
What happens when grandma's favorite recipe, one you cherished as a child, was never written down? That is the focus this time of Kien Are We, CPR's podcast about culture and identity. Let's join host and co-creator May Ortega. When it comes to his identity, 27-year-old Brandon Vargas has an interesting term he uses to describe himself. So I sort of call myself the classic American mutt because my mom's side of the family is a half Native American and a half Spanish. My dad's side of the family is half Irish and half Mexican. With a background that's a mix of diverse cultures, Brandon says that sometimes people seem to have a hard time figuring out his ethnicity. And that means they often overlook his Latino heritage. And that is a huge part of his story. On the day-to-day, this isn't usually an issue. Brandon lives in a diverse neighborhood on the west side of Denver, dotted with Latino and Asian restaurants and a mix of people who represent lots of communities. But sometimes, sometimes, total strangers will make assumptions about him based solely on his appearance. And sometimes it's led to embarrassing and even painful interactions. Aesthetically, most people actually tend to think I look Asian, so Hmm. um, most people ask me about Asian heritage. And I'm like, I have no idea. (laughs) You might want to go talk to someone who is actually Asian. I worked at Benihana's and the Benihana's uniform is a gi, like you tie around yourself. Mm -hmm. And so when I was working there in high school, I was a server and there's this um, lady behind the bar and she looks at me and she's like, oh, I'm so glad that you people are embracing your heritage. And I was just like, oh, there's a lot to unpack in there. I'm going to leave. Oh boy. (laughs) Yep, I'm going to dip out. Yikes, y'all, what is that? Being rudely mislabeled so often leaves Brandon with complex questions on how to explore and express who he is and how to do that in a way that feels genuine to him. So when thinking about my own identity, there's always the questions of like, well... Should I investigate? Should I embody this more? I'm already interpreted to be something so different than what I am. What label would actually feel like it fits or feel like it's mine? So Mm -hmm. that's made me feel more pushed away from my own natural identity and heritage. And that is where food comes in. One of the places where Brandon can find something that is uniquely his is in the kitchen. Cooking is one way he can explore the Latino heritage that people don't even realize is such an intrinsic part of his story, one that he wants to connect with more deeply. The cooking aspect really does make me feel more tied on a personal level. It's not performative. It's something I do. It's nothing really tied to anything else that anyone else does that's private in my own kitchen. I get to eat it. I get to cook it. I get to smell it. And then eventually when they're good enough, I get to share them with other people. And if they're family recipes, I get to boast that they're from my family. You could say Brandon inherited this personal relationship with food and cooking from both sides of his family. When he was a kid, his dad taught him how to find his way around a kitchen. He would grow into prepping fruits and salads. Eventually, he learned knife techniques and how to cook full meals himself. And while his father instilled him with a passion for making meals, his mother's side introduced him to a very special dish that's been a real point of pride for generations. Ah, green chili, for sure. 
And that is today's star. Well, that and Brandon, obviously, made possible by his abuelita. <laughs> uh, my grandmother's green chili was the accompaniment and staple of every holiday. It didn't matter if it was Easter, Thanksgiving, Christmas. It was the gravy for ham, turkey, uh, perfect side dish for mashed potatoes, everything alongside of being its own stand-up thing. It's really nice, velvety, smooth, spicy green chili. And it's the thing that all of my family asked my grandma to make. If it's not at a holiday, we all ask where it is. Um, <laughs> but it's always been a familial staple. We should take a moment to explain which kind of green chile Brandon is talking about here. Lots of people are probably familiar with salsa verde. It's a runny hot sauce served in a small dish, often with like tortilla chips or on tacos is how I prefer it. But in Colorado and New Mexico, and really most of the Southwest, when folks hear green chile, they think of a thick pork green chile. It's a type of stew that usually smothers whatever food it's on, like chile relleno, burritos, and even all on its own with a side of flour tortillas. God, my mouth is watering just talking about it. I mean, really, the food underneath the chile is just a vehicle to get the green goodness in your mouth, if we're being honest. Then there's the chile we're talking about today. Brandon's grandmother's green chile is more like a gravy, something you'd use to top off your plate, especially a dish like huevos rancheros. That's what Brandon uses it on. It's such a simple and pure and lovely recipe that is just symbolic of childhood for me. I mean, it's soft, it's luxurious, it is... Um, the mouthfeel that it has is so unique. And then the spice settles on the back of your tongue the more you eat of it. And it's a slow buildup. Mm. So it's just the mix of those two sensations. And then its taste, its taste isn't complicated. It's a pretty straightforward flavor. It's the green chilies. It's uh, a hint of pork and it's the salt. Yeah. It's the green chilies sit at the helm of the flavor profile of that dish. And it is so simple and so elegant. The peppers that make up the chile have a history all of their own in Colorado and New Mexico. The hot, sunny days and cool, dry nights in the region are ideal for cultivating these peppers. Pueblo green chiles or hatch green chiles, depending on the area. And they make the local cuisine that much more delicious. This recipe has been in Brandon's family for generations. His commitment to perfecting this dish is not only because it's delicious, though that doesn't hurt, <laughs> to learn how to cook his grandmother's velvety green chile would create a bridge between Brandon and his ancestors. And it would become a delicious, tangible part of what defines him as a person. Basically, it would create a connection that he sometimes feels he's missing. Yeah, I mean... It's hard because, you know, none of the younger generations of my family were taught how to speak Spanish. I don't speak Spanish. When I go um, to the panderia to get snacks, they speak to me in Spanish because they assume I know. And it's, um, there's all these different pieces that I feel like, oh, I'm actually missing that piece. But having that cultural thing is like, oh, I can make this green chili, though. I can make this mean family you know, Latino green chili that really does sing close to my culture heritage and makes me feel like I am also a part of um, just my core heritage. Yeah. 
Quién Are We? with host May Ortega. When we come back, the trial and error of recreating Grandma's recipe for green chili. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. In the late 60s, sharp students at Denver's Manual High School were given an unusual project, build a plane, designed by their teacher, Lamar Steen. He was a big man, and as an avid aerobatic pilot, he'd spent a lot of time cramped into small stunt planes. So he designed a high-performance biplane that could accommodate a larger pilot more comfortably and be easy enough for amateur builders. In just over a year, Mr. Steen's students produced a prototype, then watched as their teacher climbed into the open cockpit, took off into the blue Colorado sky, and turned loop after loop after loop. They called the design the Steen Skybolt after the Manual High School mascot, the Thunderbolt. And since that first Skybolt in 1970, many more have been built around the world, nurturing STEM skills and allowing many more to defy gravity. A Colorado postcard from CPR with the support of Dazzle Jazz in Denver. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Brandon Vargas beams with pride when he thinks of his grandmother's green chili. So he set out to make it for his friends and family. There was just one catch. She never wrote down the recipe. Let's rejoin CPR's podcast, Quien Are We? with host May Ortega. If Brandon wants to become his family's newest green chile connoisseur, all he has to do is ask his mom or grandma, right? I mean, just go and ask them. Well, as we all know, things are easier said than done. How did, I know you got this recipe, did you get it from your mom or from your grandma? My mom. Okay. Mm -hmm. And how, did she write it down for you anywhere? Uh, She texted me it. Um, So that (laughs) Very modern. That was nice. Yeah. So she texted me it, and then from there, I worked from there. But I've had to go back to her a couple of times, and every time I ask her about it, it's different than the original message she sent me. Uh, (laughs) So then there was actually, like, one holiday, like, before the pandemic, where I was like, okay, well, walk me through how you do it mm-hmm. and um she walked me through and then that too was different than the message that she, she sent me so i was like okay well there are so many variables here this was all intimidating to say the least but brandon was up for the challenge he was not about to let some vague or conflicting advice get in the way of his mission to make the perfect green chile after all how hard could it be there's like seven or eight ingredients total so should be fairly easy. There's uh, garlic, there's a fat, there's pork, green chilies, and salt and onion powder. So he had the recipe and he had the drive to make great green chile. And he got to work. The first time he tried, Brandon remembers roasting the chiles, skinning them, then cooking over a hot stove for hours to create batch number one. And upon taking his first bite, the first time I made it, it was chunky. Hmm. Odd description. It wasn't uh, anywhere close. It was like a really light green because I put too much flour in it. Um, oh. <laughs> yeah, so it was pretty bland. It, it still had some of the spice, but it wasn't that good. So he tried again and again and a few times after that. I, this In my first eight batches, I think about half of those, I was like, I'm messing up the flour so, so bad. 
But Brandon is not a quitter. He pressed on and got better over time. Before long, he's made his 15th batch. But that damn flour. The flour part is always the part that still makes me the most nervous because if you put too much flour in the dish, uh, it makes it bland. It's hard to recover from that point. And so it's been, I think I messed up like three times in a row of like getting beyond the point of no return. And it's hard to, hard to describe. It's not as soft as hers. And you eat it anyway. You eat it no matter what. Yeah. I fully commit. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. Do you have any kind of estimate of how many times you've tried to make it? between 20 and 30 i know that uh mm. i think this probably makes my second going in a third year so when is the when's the most recent time that you tried uh i think probably about a month or so ago okay and how did that go it went better i um i changed up the pork cuts that i was buying for it um made it more tender i uh, spent a much more delicate hand on the flower these times around. So Hmm. it's a lot more balanced. Um, There's still something I'm missing in the salt levels. I still am missing something there. If Brandon sounds as cool as a Chile in November when he talks about all these failed attempts, don't let him fool you. Getting so close to his grandmother's recipe, but never actually nailing it, le pica hasta el alma. What are some of the ways that you taste your recipe compared to your grandma's, like what are some of the differences that you notice there? Texture for sure. And texture is the first thing I always notice when I try anyone else's green chili in my family, like my aunts, my mom's, um, mine. That's always the first thing that I measure is all the mouthfeel. If it doesn't feel like truly sublime velvet, you've messed up somewhere along the lines. (laughs) And for mine, mine is thicker. So she has, she's got a secret in there somewhere. I don't know what it is, but I'm getting closer. I have yet to nail down the velvety piece. And so for Brandon, even though he has the recipe written down and most of the instructions and he's made it so far, the journey continues to reach his huela's level of velvety perfection. But this is not a story of failure. What kind of feedback mm-hmm. have you gotten from different people in your life who've tasted it? So the roommate really likes it. He actually has remarked multiple times. It's one of his favorite green chili recipes he's had in Colorado. So I'm like, oh, that's awesome. But we also live together. So, you know, kind of have to say that. Uh, but he really does enjoy it. He goes out of his way to eat it on multiple times. And we'll always compliment it. Um, really does hit home for him. Mm. And then my um, partner doesn't really eat a whole lot of spicy food, but they also really appreciate the green chili recipe. And I will make like a huevos soncheros dish for it because I love huevos soncheros mm-hmm. for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. I'll yes. eat it all day. <laughs> so it's, they've also really um, remarked on the. Kyla, what would you have to say about the chili? Oh my God. It's hot. I can't taste anything. They really enjoy it a lot more than other dishes that you may find. But. I'd say it's it's pretty up there. And I, I say that pridefully. I know I'm on Federal and Colfax and there's a lot of green chili competitors in you, my general yeah, neighborhood. You are in it. You're in the thick of it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> to be clear, Brandon's green chili is good. It's it's great. 
but it's not perfect by his standards. But he's confident it is one of the best in his neighborhood where green chile abounds. So that's saying a lot. But for him, this is not over. Definitely a work in progress. The relationship with it is that it's really a um, labor of love. And each time that I make it, I manage to get it just a little bit smoother. And now, as I'm getting closer and closer, uh, the smoother our relationship gets. That relationship, like any good relationship in our lives, benefits him in more ways than one. Brandon said he's a fan of several Denver artists who express their Latino or indigenous heritage through paintings and tapestries. Brandon is doing that, too, just with a knife and some peppers. This recipe also helped fuse a bond to his family and his heritage in a way that didn't exist before. It's already become a point of pride in his life. The fact that it's a living recipe and finding all those hidden pieces of it that recipes past are all insightful into why we make it the way we do, how we cook it. I get to make my own traditions involved with it. (laughs) But I would love to be able to move anywhere in the world and be able to cook this recipe and be able to proudly say that this is my grandmother's recipe that she used to make for us. And I want that level of perfection because I want to give that same experience that I had at those Uh, family events at those holidays where they could eat it and it would fit in perfectly. So after all his hard work in the kitchen, Brandon's got his family's green chile recipe, or his own version of it anyway. And when he makes this dish, he stands alongside the generations of his mom's family. Even if a stranger at Benihana might not see Brandon's pride in his heritage, he knows who he is. And he knows his green chile is the bomb, or at least that it will be one day. Brandon's journey to connect and find his identity through food isn't rare. As you listen to Brandon's story, maybe you thought about that one dish from your childhood that you've tried to recreate, whether you nailed it or not. Don't even get me started on my mom's enchiladas, okay? When I try to connect to my family through our food... I've thought about the love and the pride that goes into the work we do in our kitchens. We're not just feeding ourselves and each other. We're underlining who we are and the pieces of us that are unique, that make us special. And if we never quite match our abuelita's recipe, maybe that just makes it that much more unique. I'm May Ortega. CPR's new podcast, Quién Are We? Follow this in all of the episodes everywhere you get your podcasts. And of course, online at CPR.org. Thanks for joining us, and thanks to a truly sublime Velvet team. Tyler Bender. Carl Bielek. Anthony Cotton. Pete Kramer. Andrea Dukakis. Rachel Estabrook. Michelle Fulcher. Matt Hers, Michael Hughes. Carla Jimenez. Pedro Lumbrano. Patrice Mondragon. Shane Rumsey. Chandra Thomas-Whitfield. And I'm Ryan Warner, with special thanks to Luis Antonio Perez. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC.